Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm joined by Jacob, as always. Hello. And today, we're going to be reviewing the game Trains. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, so first off, we just finished playing some Dingo's Dreams. We did! Super fun game. Uh, I've played it before, but only once, and so it was good to play again. It's another one from Red Raven. Got that gorgeous art, but it's much different. It's, it's much lighter. Yeah, it's. I would almost compare it to the Not Dice game, in terms yeah. of it's a game that is really just a puzzle with some points added to it. And I think it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, quick, simple, easy. We just played a game, whoever got to three first, three points. So we played a total of five rounds. Yeah. Uh, or actually, no, we played six. because We, one, we one did. Of them, we did uh, hit a stalemate one time. Yeah, we had a stalemate. So... It's cool just the way that how that works. It's just really quick. A round can be over, you know, in five minutes or it can be last up to like maybe 15, maybe 20. Mm-hmm. It's a very short game, but also pretty strategic. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because the whole game revolves around you um, essentially trying to take your five by five creative tiles mm-hmm. and get them into a specific pattern. You want to have one set of tiles face down and a different set of tiles face up. And each turn you flip one of those tiles face up and then have an opportunity to push either one row or one column, one space in Mm -hmm. either direction. So it's a lot of sort of spatial reasoning and some of those things that a lot of games don't really work with a lot. You know, it's, uh, you know, I can think of maybe five tribes, 10 minutes to kill, but a lot of the games, especially that I like to play, don't really have those sorts of mechanics so it was a fun opportunity for me to kind of you know flex those muscles Mm -hmm. and you don't get to choose which ones you flip you have cards that show you like oh you're flipping this exact tile so sometimes that can that whole randomness can make it so that oh you you know you're almost there and then this one little tile said nope you are completely gone now because your thing is on an obstacle and now you're gonna have to mess your whole uh strategy up in order to fix it right we played with obstacles which is technically an optional rule yeah so normally you have you know a set of anywhere between five and 15 out of the tiles in your spread have to be turned face up the others it doesn't matter if they're face up or face down which means in a a base game eventually someone's going to win even if that takes them till all 25 of their tiles have been flipped face up someone's going to win but the obstacles variant says that in addition to some of your tiles having to be explicitly face up some of your tiles have to be explicitly face down so that's how we ended up in that stalemate situation because you know you get to a certain point and you know you only have four face down tiles remaining and the scenario calls for five face down tiles in these specific spots and it's literally no longer possible for you to win so it creates a sort of tension mm-hmm. there where you've got this window of opportunity and you have to actually make every move count even more than you already do because you're not just racing against your opponents now you're racing against you know your own board uh, racing yeah. against time basically exactly exactly so it was interesting i, I like playing with the obstacles because it did add that extra challenge element and it allowed for things like that stalemate and just you can't just have this plan of you know i know exactly how i'm going to move these and it doesn't matter whether or not you know the the other ones flip you actually have to be prepared for getting something out of the way or moving something in a certain way so yeah it's a very enjoyable game very quick um very easy and uh quite a lot of fun 
Yeah. Yeah, um, but that wasn't the only Red Raven game that we played recently. Last night, actually, we played uh, City of Iron again, this yes. time with four players yeah. instead of just two. And that was actually not that different. Um, no, they, not, not, not much at all. They kind of incorporate player scaling pretty well when you take out the cards with three or four pips when you only have a two-player game. Mm-hmm. Um, so the game feel stayed very, very similar, just with a lot more competition over, oh, I wanted to buy that, dang it. So yeah. that was that was good. Though it was interesting because it was almost similar to a two two-player games happening because two of our players went for building strategies and two of them went for the like conquering strategy. True. So it, it really did almost feel like, you know, two people competing over the things to conquer, whereas two people are competing about the things to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's one of those situations where in a two-player game, you know, we didn't, when we did our Mm two-player game, we both went for a build strategy. Yeah. But we could have, you know, identified pretty early on, okay, you're going for a build strategy, then I'm going to go for an uncontested conquest strategy or exploration Mm -hmm. strategy, something like that, and sort of just played past each other. Mm -hmm. But a four-player game really doesn't allow that because there's only so many viable paths to victory. I would say probably three. A build-heavy strategy, Mm -hmm. an exploration-heavy strategy, and a conquest-heavy strategy. Although, the exploration strategy kind of relies on building. I was going to say that the exploration and the building strategies are almost intertwined. Right. Because a lot of times, unless you use like things like the mayor, I guess, uh, for the most part, in order to get a really good build strategy, you want to explore as well. True. Because you need the extra space, you need that, versus... If you just use the mayor, you get the not-as-good districts in your city, right. which don't let you build as much. So it definitely rewards exploration. But you also have to balance you know, whether or not that's worth it because it could be that you know, those turns that you use, that you, know, you have to buy the explorer, you have to buy the different cards that let you do exploring, mm-hmm. might not be worth it for the building strategy. But right. it all depends on what you want to do. But so that was a good, good experience, you know, good to get that to the table again and see the two new factions yeah. played. Because we, we hadn't previously played with the Hogs or the Scholars. Yes. And, you know, I think the game does a good job of sort of balancing each of mm-hmm. the races. Each of them have their own specialty. You know, Scholars are obviously research-focused, but mm-hmm. none of them are like, you have to be Scholars if you want to do okay. lots of research mm-hmm. and win that way you know it's just little things here and there little bonuses that change the way that each race is played in small ways i appreciate that yeah it's like it helps you with this one strategy but doesn't mean that it hurts you with a different strategy exactly like i mean you you were playing the race that i had which were like the builders Mm -hmm. yeah they were you know they were supposed to be consummate builders they had two unique units who were building book focused their other building thing was cheaper and i was like you know what i'm gonna fight stuff yeah and you did pretty well with that. Yeah. Uh, it was, I think, just slight miscalculation at the end that you, you didn't do as well as you'd hoped. But... Well, I didn't ramp up quickly enough. Yeah. That was one thing that I noticed with the sort of focusing on buildings that were going to enable a military. So mm-hmm. things like the outpost that allowed me to scout cities mm-hmm. and the barracks, which allowed me to draw an extra military card per turn. Neither of those were things that gave me income, Yeah, which meant for the first you know two or three turns i was really really starved where yeah. i think i would have had a better shot if i had started with a strong economic base mm-hmm. and then pivoted to military yeah. because because i had such a large wind-up time i really wasn't able to attack any town 
until like turn four anyway. Yeah. So I probably could have played the early game a little better, but you know, it was fun and it was outside my comfort zone. So yeah, I mean, one of the interesting parts is that you actually took an entire turn of three actions getting money. I did. Yeah. And that was, that was actually a late game turn too. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that, well, I, I went very much on an economic focus and building. Yeah. I went all the way in one of the basic goods, the turnips. Mm-hmm. I had all 10, and then I used the merchant, which gave me the whole 10 every time I used right. them. So. Yeah, no, that was a very effective strategy for you. Especially with the fact that I had two cards that gave me points for money. Yeah. So, so yeah. City of Iron, a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to playing it again. And yeah, then, ditto. Yeah. Other than that, I also got to play D&D. Yeah. So I had a one-shot, which was our League of One-Shots, and... I was really happy with my character, actually. Yeah? Yeah. So I'm playing a warlock. Okay. And I found out that he is extremely utilitarian. So, like, it's very much a utility class. Okay. But at the same time, I was able to deal some damage in in battle. Good. But pretty much what happened was we were tracking this camp or whatever of these bandits that we were supposed to stop, right? We, when we found it, or at least we had gotten to a uh, clearing, and I was like, okay, before we go into this clearing, we know that the like, we had fought a frost wolf there before, so I'm just like, I'm going to go scout. Mm-hmm. And the other people in the party were a paladin, a cleric, and a fighter. Okay. So All I'm wearing gonna... at least a breastplate. Right. So no one's really a very effective scout. Yes. Uh, so... I went ahead and used invisibility on myself and walked into the camp, started looking it around. And when I did, I got through, you know, found, found the illusion and like scouted out, saw how many people there were and all that and came up with a plan. And we also knew that most of them were archers. So when we finally snuck up, unfortunately, they tried sneaking. And the plan was for them to sneak up and do certain things yeah. and for me to do something else at that point. Two of them rolled ones on on sneak, and I'm envisioning a very like Looney Tunes esque sort of obvious, you know, overt sneaking. Yeah. Like you're not even remotely being stealthy, yeah. but they're gonna let you think you're being stealthy until attacking you at absolutely the most disadvantageous time. Well, pretty much what they did was they stumbled through the illusion right into pretty much where like there were dudes like ten feet away being like, "Oh, we're packing stuff onto a cart. What the hell are these two people doing here?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that raised the whole alarm. I was hidden in the underbrush in a different part that I saw this happen. And so the first thing I do is I'm just like, fog cloud. Mm. And create a big cloud of fog around them, which I maintain for a while. And of course, that gives disadvantage to archery. Yep. And any kind of ranged weapons. So very good for us and not good for them because there's a lot of ranged people. Yeah. Now I have to stall for a while because... So there was a big tent that was in the middle almost, and okay. they came out on the like, left side of the tent, and there were people in the whole camp. So some people were going around the right side of the town, tent, and I was right behind the tent. Okay. Now, I'm a squishy spellcaster. Right. I have an AC of 14 and 28 hit, uh, hit points. Okay. What level are you? I'm level 5. Okay, yeah, that's pretty low. Yeah. So all the people that are going around the right side of the tent are close to me. So if I reveal myself and start shooting other people or doing anything else, I'm all but dead. So I'm trying to like wait until they get either front of me or something. Some one of the other party members comes to in my area, or else I can't do anything because I'm just going to get 
destroyed. Sure. So finally the paladin comes over to where I am and that's when I start, you know, just shooting Eldritch Blast and all that. One of the other players has a magic item that let them cast Wed. So they captured like a large part of the contingent that was there. Mm -hmm. And then the paladin one shot the boss. He did around 100 damage in one round. Smite evil, I assume? He had like some kind of smite in there and like two attacks and he rolled a crit and all together it was just... Everything just kind of came together for him. It came together in a way that it was just like destroyed that guy in one shot. Uh, but then we had, we still were pretty outnumbered, so sure. he just became a pincushion because there were a lot of archers shooting at him. Right. At which point I created a water wall. Yeah, very utility. Yeah, exactly. So I created a wall of water, boom, right there, just as like the fog clouds started dissipating at that point because it was, uh, you know, I can't have two concentration spells up at once. Right. And they'd almost taken care of the other guys. So I put up this water wall, but that happened at a point where one of the better fighters was right next to me. Oh, one of the better enemy fighters? Enemy fighters. Oh, yeah. And I'm just true. like, uh, I'm already at, I was at 13 hit points because I got hit by the Frost Wolf okay. before. And, you know, 14 AC, 13 hit points. Not really good to be next to a really good <laughs> fighter. Not usually, especially if you're casting spells. Yeah, pretty much. So what I did was I just went and one of our healer healed me up. Mm -hmm. But I had one trick up my sleeve. Hellish Rebuke. Okay. So the cool thing about Warlocks is that they, they only have like very small numbers of spell slots. Mm -hmm. But those spell slots are always at the highest spell slot that they can have. So I was at 5th level, therefore my two spell slots were both at level 3. How weird. Yeah, it's strange, but it works. Huh. And so the other spells that I was casting, the Fog Cloud and the uh, Water Wall, were from my race. They're just class race abilities because I was a Triton. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I was like, yeah. all right, that makes sense. And so what happened at that point was... This guy, I decided to just, you know, take the opportunity attack because otherwise he could have hit me like two or three times and I would have been dead. Mm -hmm. So I moved away. He hit me for quite a bit on the opportunity attack. And like my character turned around like, you shall never touch me again. Mm -hmm. And Hellish rebuked him. I rolled 40 tens. Okay. And I rolled 38 points of damage. Yep. That's a pretty <laughs> hellish rebuke. All right. Yeah, pretty much. He got fried and then, you know, I hid behind a tree and had my paper drake hovering next to me so he didn't come up and sneak up on me again. And he, according to the GM, he just like looked at me like he was fully like charred and everything. He just looked at me like was like, okay, I'm going this way. I'm going to go <laughs> fight that paladin guy. He's been thoroughly rebuked. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, if I hit someone... And I spontaneously burst into flame. Yep. I would probably not hit that person again. Like, that's some Pavlov shit right there. That is that is negative reinforcement. Yep. So we ended up with all this. We managed to actually beat them all. We tied up the last two. And then got quite a bit of experience for it. And it just... Our party worked really well together. With like, We had one healer. We had the, um, the paladin who was tanking everything. And then we had the fighter who was going through and like killing people. So... It was it was a lot of fun. It was nice to be in a very balanced party like that. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, that is what I've been playing. And that's a look at what we've been playing. Please mind the gap as you enter the train. 
This is the Dragon's Demise review of Trains. Next stop, Akihabara. Trains is, appropriately enough, a game about trains. You are some sort of rail magnet in contemporary Japan, so it's not your typical, you know, Age of Steam type train game, and you're trying to build the most efficient, most effective rail line possible. Yes. It's got a couple of different elements, some of which we've seen before with games like Ticket to Ride or Paris Connection, where Mm -hmm. you're laying rails physically on a board, and then others we don't usually see in a train game that involve deck building, a la Dominion or Ascension, things like that. Yeah, so it's actually the deck building aspect that is almost the main fuel for how the game is played. Right. So what you do with the deck building aspect is that's how you can lay rail, that's how you can add stations to different cities, and how you buy different cards and everything like that and get different abilities. So you go through and every turn you go, just like any kind of deck builder, draw five cards from your deck, and then with the five cards you can choose which cards to play, you will go ahead and put them down, use their abilities. The trains that are there will give you money versus the the track laying, which will let you lay track on the actual board. And the cards that let you build stations, which will let you put stations on the board. Now, an interesting thing here is that when you play cards like lay rails or build a station expansion, those all give you waste. Right. So you get to play something on the board, but you also have to take waste as you know the byproduct of building this new whatever. Mm-hmm. And this happens quite a bit during the game. You will get more and more waste cards, which make your deck grow and grow with a lot less useful cards. Right. But, you know, you also, during this time, buy a bunch of other kinds of cards, more station expansions, more lay rails. You can also get all the other extra cards that are available during that game. Right. And as with many deck building games, the types of cards that are available for you to purchase to add to your deck are randomly selected from all the possible cards at the beginning of the game. So you only have, you know, 10 different actions or special lay rail cards or, you know, special train cards that provide money that you're going to be choosing from each game. So you have to try to build the best deck possible. Lots of these mechanics are going to sound very familiar. The unique bit is how they interact with the board. So like we mentioned, when you use either a lay rail card or a station expansion card, you actually put tokens on the field representing your rails or stations, which are themselves neutral. And when you do that, in addition to gaining a waste card, you have to spend money. So the money isn't just used for purchasing cards that go into your deck. It's also used for interacting with the board. It's used for basically everything in the game. Mm -hmm. And so that board aspect of the game is something that really drives, I would say, the first three quarters of the game. You know, you're, you're building your deck, but almost everything that you do with your deck is in furtherance of your board presence. Mm -hmm. So when you're building rails, there's different types of terrain that have different costs associated. If you're building on an empty field, that obviously costs less than building over a mountain, Mm -hmm. which is even more expensive than building over a city, things like that. Yep. So you create this network of rails around the countryside of Japan. The board is two-sided. You can either play on the Tokyo side or the Osaka side. 
-hmm. Connecting to cities doesn't inherently give you any points, unlike Paris Connection, a similar sort of game. But you can build stations on them, and each station increases the number of points that you get from that particular city. So each city can only support a certain number of stations, and the more stations you are, they sort of scale exponentially. The first one is worth two, the second one is worth two, but then the third one is worth four. So you're going to be fighting over a lot of these three tile stations or another type of tile called remote locations, which are worth X number of points based on usually how difficult they are to access. Yeah. And the reason you're going to be fighting over them is because while you don't lock anyone out of building track, you do make it more expensive for a person to build a track either anywhere that you already have a track or on a city that already has stations on it. So the game, just sort of the nature of the board encourages isolation, but especially in a game with three or four players, you may not even have that opportunity. You're going to be running into situations where you would love to stay in your proverbial lane, but you can't because you got to get more points. Yeah. So you're having to kind of be strategic about how you earn your points while also being strategic about how you block off other people. Exactly, exactly. So you can always build, you know, over other people or on the same tiles as other people. There's no limit to how many of them there can be. But at the same time, that really starts getting more and more costly. You building the stations on something that you own, like a city, you would think that, oh, someone can just come in and add another rail token into the city and then, you know, they'll get the same points as I do. But if you build up the stations quickly, then they're going to almost get locked out of it because of cost. Right. It's very much a disincentive. Mm -hmm. So in order to do all this, you know, you have to get more money through getting the different trains and, and just increasing your deck flow. But you start accumulating waste really quickly in this game. Mm -hmm. And there are certain cards which help you out with this. There are some waste management cards. Right. So landfill is the one that they start you off with when you first play the game. They tell you, oh, here is the recommended. Uh, you know, at least use these two cards. All the other ones can be random. And those two cards would be landfill, and I forget what the other one was. But biggest one is landfill because that lets you get rid of a lot of your waste cards mm -hmm. which once every time you play like you know a rail a station anything like that they're going to accumulate really quickly and they're going to just gum up your deck like crazy yeah but you know you're also buying other cards that you know let you draw more cards get more money be able to build on certain terrains without having to pay the extra costs and that kind of stuff so yeah mechanically this sort of deck thinning focus is going to be very familiar to anyone who's played pretty much any deck builder you know you want to keep your deck as tight as possible you want to work out the lower quality cards it's just that due to the nature of the game and due to the fact that almost every single thing you do that has the potential to earn you points is going to add waste to your deck there's just a lot more of it in terms of scale and in terms of scope yeah so another thing a little bit different than some deck builders like dominion especially is that you don't have a certain number of actions that you can do per turn it's only that you can do as much as you can from your hands so you can use one card as an action then buy something then use a different card as an action you know, whatever combination of these you would like you can do uh, as long as you have the cards available in your hand they're fair game yeah it's definitely very free form the cards that you purchase unless they state otherwise 
don't go into your hands, so they can't be used immediately. But if, you know, you want to buy something and guarantee that I'm going to make that happen so I don't forget about it, and then draw yourself some cards and place some actions and things like that, mm-hmm. you can absolutely do that. So there's a lot of flexibility there. So that's sort of how gameplay works, the mechanics of it. The game ends when one of three conditions are met. Either any four piles of cards, not including waste, are completely empty. Mm -hmm. When all of the stations have been placed, which again, stations are neutral. Everybody draws from a sort of communal pool. Yep. Or when one player has placed all of their rail tokens. Mm -hmm. I mean, rails are unique to each player. So when that happens, you count up your points from the board, which includes connections to cities, connections to remote locations, and I believe that's actually it. And then there are also residential buildings, things like apartments, skyscrapers that you can purchase that are cards that go into your deck and give you points. So you add up those two totals, and whoever has the most points wins. Exactly. And so this game, in terms of feel does a pretty good job i think it balances the whole board aspect and the deck building aspect really well they feel very well integrated yeah it doesn't feel like you're playing like two different games it feels like one is really well like into the other and i really like that because it's not a genre that you normally see put together where you you don't usually see a lot of things that uh, you use your deck building in order to build something else so it's nice to be able to see something that actually works like that definitely It's also a very quickly paced game, especially at the beginning. You know, you're just going through very, very quickly. You're taking your turns in pretty rapid succession. Mm -hmm. If you either don't invest in or don't have access to waste management cards, that does tend to slow down. But as long as you keep on top of it, you know, the game stays relatively quick for the entire duration. So it's, you know, easy to pick up and play, and it doesn't ever feel like a slog unless, you know, you've got... 50% 50% of your deck full of waste, which leads us into the fact that no game is perfect. Yes. So one of the biggest things is just the proportion of waste. This game, we played once without any waste cards or without any waste management cards. Right. Important difference. <laughs> yes. I wish that we could play without waste cards, but no. Uh, no, without any waste management cards. And... It got really bad. Yeah. Both of us had, I think, at least 50% of our deck full of waste. So, yeah. And even with you know shuffling, it was literally every other turn was five waste or four waste in one coin, which isn't enough to do anything. Like We were just pitching entire hands because we had so much waste clogging our deck. Exactly, exactly. So that is one thing that it just, in general, even with waste management, it's really hard to maintain your deck. And you could just get bogged down really quickly. That's one of the things that we think could be changed. You know, don't make waste as prevalent. I think it's still a very good mechanic to have the waste Mm -hmm. because it both sends a message and also is important in the game. But for example, I think you said that only take waste whenever you play something that you have to actually pay money for creating this track or something like that. Right. Just Uh, something that's going to keep sort of the core mechanics in place and keep the fact that you gain waste for things that could score you points because that's Mm -hmm. a very strong connection and a very important one but make it so that it only happens 75 percent of the time you know design a sort of situation where you're not going to be taking it every single time and clogging up your deck so much exactly exactly so 
That's definitely one of the things. The other thing which ties into this one is the way that you choose your spread of cards, pretty much. So you can, of course, always just choose whichever cards you want. Like, whatever spread you want, you can go ahead and take those cards out and play with them. That's fine. The rulebook, however, has the randomizer cards, which is what they recommend you do. Uh, and that is just taking, shuffling them together and taking out a random eight cards and playing with those. And this means that you are very much not guaranteed to get any waste management cards. Yeah, it's, it's unlikely, in fact. I think there's only three or four out of, you know, 25 different possible cards. Yeah. So, I mean, because of that, you're likely, if you just use their way of doing it, you're very likely to just play without any waste management cards, have a very gummed up deck. And that wasn't really that much of a problem for us. It was annoying for the two of us when we played a two-player game. Mm -hmm. But in a four-player game, for example, if you draw a hand of waste, or even even worse, you draw a hand of you know three waste and two coins with the lowest thing that you can buy being three at that point. You, there are two uh, cost cards, but we, you might not have them out. You're then both wasting the coins and your turn. You have to, you draw that at the end of your turn. You're seeing what you can do. Oh, I can do nothing. I'm waiting for one, two, three people taking your turn to discard your hand, draw a new one, and then waiting another one, two, three people in order to play. Yeah. So that I think can be a big, big problem. So just the combination of the waste and the fact that they don't have something like Dominion has of like themed setups and that kind of stuff can make this a little bit hard to play, especially for new players. Because if you don't know that you're going to have to make a waste management kind of thing in there, you might just be like, okay, no, whatever. I'm just going to do the randomizer, boom, 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 put it out. And then you're stuck with a deck that's 50% waste. Yeah, totally agree. So yeah, waste management and sort of the rate at which you accumulate waste is a big part of one of the drawbacks of this game. One of the other things that we thought sort of kept it from being a perfect game is that there's not a lot of player scaling. There are two sides to the board, which we mentioned, the Tokyo side and the Osaka side, but they're the same size, roughly. They have roughly the same number of hexes, which means there's no situation in which a two-player game and a four-player game are going to have the same sorts of problems. And, you know, you could say, sure, just play with the two players if you want to have a more wide open thing, but then that's inflexibility with regards to the setup of the game. So they've already got a board on both sides. Why not just make one more zoomed out, make it be smaller hexes, larger, it can accommodate four players with less, you know, elbow rubbing. You could still play on the small board with four players if you wanted that sort of contentious experience. Mm -hmm. It would just allow you to have a more wide open experience if that was something that you wanted with more players. So a little bit, you know, little thing, but it's something that sort of takes a toll on you once you get to be playing with three or four players. Yep, there you go. Well, all that being said, uh, let's talk about what we thought overall. Overall, I did really enjoy this game. You know, we've just come off a streak of talking bad about it, but I really do enjoy this game. I think it's very unique. You know, we, we couldn't think of a single game that combines these sorts of territory control with pure deck builder elements and i think it does it very successfully i think it's easy to pick up and easy to play so i'm going to give it a play it especially this would be a great game if you go to you know your friendly local game store or if you go to a board game pub something like that you see it on the shelf that's the perfect situation where you'd want to pick it up 
take it for a test drive. Yep, totally. I agree. I think that it is a play it for me as well, much the same reason. It's a lot of fun to play. I love the mix of the deck building and the territory control. It actually, you know, I like it a little bit more than most just pure deck building games. But at the same time, it has a few issues, as we talked about, that take it away from being a 100% like buy it from me. So I will say play it as well. All right. So that's our review of trains. Before we go, let's talk about a few games that are similar. You may like if you enjoy this or vice versa. Obviously, we've talked about two of them already. Dominion, if you like the deck building element, I can't stress enough how similar it is. You know, you've got trains that are valued at one, two, three gold. You've got points providing cards that scale up one, two, four, very similar to, you know, estates, duchies, provinces. It has a lot of very similar mechanics to Dominion. So if you like that, check this out. The other one being Paris Connection. If you like this sort of territory control using markers that don't necessarily preclude someone from going somewhere, but can discourage them from going there, this has a lot of overlap with that. So it's worth checking out if you enjoy Paris Connection as well. And the last one is Machikoro. Uh, This is another game, first of all, set in Japan, so, you know, if that's what you're into. But it's that kind of sort of mix of mechanics that are not always put together. It's a city-building game with dice. And, you know, certain things get uh, activated when you roll certain numbers. So it's a bit of a mix of these different ideas that works really well and has a very similar feel to... Uh, trains. So if you like Machi Koro, I would definitely recommend checking out Trains and vice versa. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope that you enjoyed it. Don't forget, Washington tickets are on sale now. We will be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's here in Washington, D.C. in Georgetown Convention Center. So be sure to grab tickets before the 9th and 10th of September when the convention is being held. Check out the tickets online. They're available now and kids tickets are a lot cheaper as well as if you can only go for one day, you can get one day tickets for Sunday. So definitely check it out. There are going to be a lot of cool people. We're going to be there. We're going to be doing some you know, podcasting as well as some live recordings and that kind of stuff. So we highly recommend checking it out. Also, we're going to be starting to stream Zombicide Black Plague on Twitch. We don't have a set day yet, but it will be going on. I'm still finishing painting the miniatures. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. So join us for that next week.